Hello and welcome to Waiting for Deservation. This is the bi-weekly show in which we go through the polls, check out the trends and talk about what's been going off during the weeks. With me as ever with my co-host is Rob Clark. Hello. Joining us to return to the panel and talk all things Scotland is Alistair Walker-Stewart. Hello. And joining us for the first time on Waiting for Deservation, but not for the first time on the podcast, is Criminal and Justice Network Secretary and co-founder of Labour Coalition for Justice Reform, Lauren Davidson. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for coming back on. We're glad we managed, didn't manage to scare you off after the NEC special. Um, only slightly. Only slightly. I mean, hopefully we've all calmed down since then, because, you know. No. <laughs> no? Good to know. So, uh, <laughs> after that stellar start, um, we shall move immediately into talking about what's going off with the polls. And Rob, do you want to talk us through that? Well, the uh, the polls are a mess, George, for the Labour Party. It's that pretty much that simple. Uh, it hasn't been going well. Labour are significantly behind the Conservatives in pretty much every single poll. We've got uh, the lowest margin being around 6% advantage for the Conservatives. The Lib Dems have seen a slight uptick in support, a, a eye-watering 9%, a dizzying heights they've not seen since 2019. But all in all, there's not really too much to say. It's not going particularly well for Keir Starmer's Labour Party at the moment in the uh, sort of aftermath of the, of the big vaccine turnout uh, you know machine has been churning out the vaccines and it's been quite positive for the government so there's not there's not much to look forward to for the Labour Party at the moment. The only thing I would add is that I personally believe that the vaccine boost might actually have peaked this is just based off of one trend but just because when you compare the Redfield Wilton polls at the start of the period we monitored from March the 1st up until March 16th uh, we saw that um, the Tories won 44% then the Tories went up to 45% on the 8th of March, and now on the 16th of March, they're down to 43%, which means that whilst they're kind of teetering around that, it seems like they've kind of hit their roof, as it were, unless something even better happens. But I, I think that might be it. Join us in two weeks' time when I'm proven completely wrong. So let's move on from the polls. Um, actually, before we do that, I should probably ask the panel what they think. Um, should we start with Lauren? So I don't... Don't want to take this as like a ringing endorsement of Keir Starmer because I'm obviously not going to absolve him of the things he's failing on. I don't think a lot of people on Twitter, for example, are saying, you know, it's proof that Keir needs to go and very melodramatic. I think I don't think it makes too much difference who the leader was right now. We're kind of up against a vaccine rollout that the public think was the government's doing rather than the NHS, and they are getting the credit for it. The Tory party are kind of shape-shifting aren't they at the minute sort of maintain power we've seen that with Rishi Sunak um and I, th I think the insecurity of a recession and a pandemic is making people quite resistant to change and I think that is amalgamating in them supporting the government a little bit more so I don't think it would make a difference what we did at the minute I think we're sort of irrelevant at this stage in the game it's all kind of all eyes are on the government really yeah, I agree that it's, it's very difficult to make headway and we've been constantly told that going on the charm offensive via the Zoom account is just not happening. Um, Alistair, buddy, what's um, your perception? Well, aside from the very Westminster-centric uh, no uh, notion of these polls, um, ultimately, I don't think it's that bad. I mean, the government's vaccine rollout programme, well, it, it functionally it isn't just the NHS because the army is involved as well. And we're seeing in Scotland, especially, lots of problems with um, the nationalists here. But look at Wales, 55% of the population is vaccinated in Wales. It's the highest in the UK. They're nearly 10% above Scotland. So I think 
in the places where Labour is doing well, it is going to be Wales and Mark Drakeford's going to take the credit for that. And I think that's wholeheartedly. Ultimately, do I give the government credit for how the vaccine rollout is going out in the rest of the UK? Well, sort of, yes. I am quite grateful they vastly bulk ordered the vaccine. I think polls reflect that. In regard to it being past its peak, that's probably true. But again, I'll wait for two weeks to be proven wrong. Mm. The bulk purchasing was courtesy of the film Contagion, I believe, which Matt Hancock saw and was so enamoured with that he decided that <laughs> the, uh, the disaster... Is that the corrupt Matt Hancock we were talking no, about well, previously? Well, I wouldn't uh, go that far. Well, that, that sounds down for a libel suit. There um, we go. Um, I was just also going to quickly add, I don't know if any of that makes me qualified to be in charge of handling a terror situation because my favourite film is Four Lions. Um, <laughs> well, maybe. My, mine's, uh, well, mine's Lord of the Rings, so I don't think I'm qualified for anything unless the uh, the Eye of Sauron muscles on in. But I mean, Pretty Patel's pretty much there. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Who says satire's dead? I know. Um, uh, should we talk well, briefly about Hartlepool before we, we move oh. on to the polls? Yes, so just on the day of recording, it's been announced that there's going to be a by-election in Hartlepool, and oh boy, it's shaping out to be the most calamitous thing in British politics since the last thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> We've, We're going to be seeing a by-election where there's going to be the Northern Independence Party, the um, Reform Party, its leader Richard Tice stand, standing as a candidate. We're possibly going to see a lot of jostling over who the Labour candidate will be. There's even George Galloway hinting he might throw his hat in the ring. Um, there's Hartlepool Socialist Labour. Like, there's, there's a lot of different little parties in this. And does anyone have any kind of snap judgments? Um, you've literally got 30 seconds before we move on. Let's start with Alistair. Well, I think over the police and crime bill, we're going to get a lot of attack lines over that. So I will probably say this more often, that we probably do just need a middle-aged ex-copper from the area. Um, because that will sort of be robust and it means that we can put out our party lines properly without having uh, bad faith attacks. Excellent stuff, nice and concise. Rob? Uh, I think maybe choosing an, ex, an ex-policeman in the midst of really bad press for the police is perhaps uh, something Labour should be a bit wary of. Uh, secondly, the favourite candidate is someone who's been over, you know, has been pretty open about their support for Remain in a second referendum, which again, in Hartlepool may not play the best. I think Labour have to choose very carefully who the candidate is. This by-election, I think Labour will hold, um, but they have to play it carefully because it's by no means safe. And finally, Lauren. I've got three criteria here. One, please don't make them be a Remainer, because I think it's just absolutely, it, it makes no sense. Second of all, please can they not be Laura Pidcock, because no thank you. And three, I've completely forgotten what I was going to say for three, but I'll just repeat, not Laura Pidcock. I mean, that's that's so important that you need stressing twice, I think. Um, apparently, I mean, I'm going to do a direct quote here, which means, unfortunately, this podcast will not be PG anymore. Uh, apparently, the idea that um, Laura is considering it is absolute bollocks, according to the um, Trade Union Congress, which, if I remember correctly, Laura, you thought was a personal attack on you uh, on your Twitter feed. Yeah, because I tweeted it about an hour before Tom Harwood did, saying, oh, I bet she's going to do it. And then she did. So either I've given her the idea or I've completely like, I am the Labour source. You Who might knows? Be, I mean, that'd be a big improvement being a Labour source. It's so much fun. Um, but we're going to move away now from Hartlepool because we're actually going to talk about one of the figures um, who's been mentioned there, Richard Tice, which I believe Rob can uh, tell us more about. 
Well, yeah, you say we're moving away from Hartlepool, but we're not moving that far away because the new leader of the Reform Party is the candidate for Hartlepool at the 2019 general election. He was also chairman of the Brexit Party, uh, Richard Tice. Um, in the notes, George has perhaps unkindly referred to him as a more competent Paul Nuttall. He's a very different man from Paul Nuttall in that he's never lied about once having played for Morecambe. And uh, I mean, all manner of things, really. Paul Nuttall was an expert liar. But the, the bulk of the question is about the man Richard Tice is taking over from, and it's Nigel Farage, who has announced his resignation from politics again. So the question to the panel is, what is Nigel Farage's legacy? And now what happens to reform UK now that the asset, the asset, has gone? So if we start with, we'll start with George, actually, go on. Oh, man. Well, um, I'll be very brief. Um, I think this is going to be the point where populist right parties fizzle out. The, with, with Nigel Farage, what you had was someone who, whilst he was deeply popular and very divisive, he was someone who could get his brand across quite concisely. He was somebody who, for better or worse, had an ability to connect to certain types of people. Now, that requires being a very big character, but also we all know him as kind of this like, laughing and joking person, which is what he wanted to come across as. When you watch people like Richard Tice, they're a bit more complicated than that, and I get a very angry feeling from him, which I think doesn't translate into... I was going to say election winner, but not really election winners, are they? Apart from the EU elections in 2019. Um, that's it. I, I personally just think that because of the fact that Reform UK is built on the, basically the political sands of former projects like UKIP and uh, other um, independent streaks, I, I personally think that this is going to mean Reform UK is going to just fizzle out slowly. Great. Cheers for that, George. Uh, Lauren, do you, do you agree or do you have a slightly different point of view? Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I think with the populist turn that we're seeing from the Conservative Party, especially with this policing bill, I think that they they know now that I think the Tories know that the smaller parties are going anyway. So you can see that with the 2019 intake of Tory MPs, like the red wall, or now the blue wall, but you know what I mean. Um, their intake have no actual discernible ideas or merit other than the fact that they backed Boris's Brexit deal. So they deal totally in populism. That is what they do. So you know, populists will be at home in that party. And in terms of Farage's legacy, I really would love to say that he hasn't got one because I despise the bloke and I will celebrate the end of his public life. You know, I will celebrate that. That sounds like I'm giving him a death threat, doesn't it? I'm not, <laughs> just to say, <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, well, that's but, the list of lawsuits this podcast has. Yeah, it's fine. This won't be the first, uh, the last in this podcast for me. So, um you know, I'm going to give him more credit than I would like to. He has repeatedly failed to become an MP, but he did get what he wanted. He did get Brexit done. I know the Conservative Party had a part to play in, you know, some darker figures like Cambridge Analytica, Dominic Cummings as well. But he did get what he wanted. He was successful. He got, you know, independence from the EU. So he has got a legacy, whether we like it or not. It just he's just not a very savoury character. Mm. No, well said, well said. Uh, Alistair, what's your what's your take on, on Nigel Farage? Well, he's sort of the last of the um, the old Have I Got News For You candidates. Um, we've seen, well, Boris Johnson's reached his peak after that. He will go, Sadiq Khan. Whether or not he goes on to be Prime Minister, I don't think he will. So that'll be it. He'll go, Tim Farron went, now Nigel Farage is gone. You know, 
it is a whole field of them who sort of rose to prominence through being able to take a lap, being able to go on popular television and, you know, take a bit of toil. Nigel Farage for a long time was the man people loved to hate, to quote, think of it. Now he is the man people hate, just hate. So ultimately his legacy is going to be one of bitter division, but he is still going to be that sort of pub guy you meet down the pub mm. character to everyone. Yeah, he's uh, he's definitely had an impact on our on our politics. It does feel like the end though this time because Rob, he's, he's retired. But I'll, I'll jump in because I know you're desperate to say it. What do you think? No, I wasn't. I was just gonna. I was gonna ask another question. You know, ask does it? Do we think he's actually going to stay resigned because he does this a lot, where he says, "I'm done. I'm 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 going now into the into the woods. I'm not coming back." And then two or so years later. He pops back up. So, do we think that this is is the is the actual end of Nigel Farage, or will he will he reemerge with another party in a few years? I suspect we are going to hear the words "No, no, no, let me speak" one more time. Um, yeah, I think as long as he's got a radio show on LBC, he stands like a 50-50 chance of coming back one more time. Um, it, it might be for something specific because. At the minute, Reform UK's entire shtick is that they're like a libertarian, anti-lockdown, social equality type party. I say social equality, but, you know, I'm putting that in quotation marks, like the right wing version where um, the state doesn't do anything to stop people from just treating like shit because apparently everyone's got the individual right to discriminate. Yeah, there we go. So just, you know, just before we do move on to Richard Tice, because he's a, a deeply interesting character, we have no doubt all got lots to say about Um George asked what I thought about Nigel Farage. I don't really know what to say about the man other than he set out a long time ago to get us to leave the European Union and through a hell of a lot of shenanigans and an awful lot of political luck, it must be said at times, the man did eventually, as uh, as Lauren said, get what he wanted to be done. Legacy-wise, I don't think he'll be looked back on particularly favourably as a as a person, I think people will acknowledge his achievements and they will acknowledge that this is a man who pretty much changed the course of British politics, but I don't think he'll be remembered fondly at all. So that's my take on uh, on Nigel. But the new guy, Richard Tice, as I say, he's he's been involved for a little bit. He's been the chairman of the party since his creation in 2019, and he's now the leader of the party. He is a Liverpool fan, but he's also right wing, which makes him a, a very rare breed. Of, uh, of Liverpool fan. Um, George said he got a very angry tone from him and I can, I can sort of understand that. He, he is someone who doesn't have Nigel Farage's ability to take the punches. Like Alistair said, Nigel Farage was that have I got news for you character? You know, you could go on and the, the, you know, the infamous fruitcake or loony round on have I got news for you and Nigel Farage was asked about his own candidates <laughs> Uh, are they fruitcake or are they loony? And Nigel Farage played along. You can't really see Richard Tice doing that. He's a very different kind of leader. He comes across more of a businessman than a politician. But the thing I want to ask you guys is, is do you think Richard Tice will keep Reform UK going? Or do you think this is, this is just sort of prepping for the party being phased out entirely? And I'll start with, uh, I'll start with Alistair this time. It's a bit like um, the death of Top Gear, I'm just going to say. Essentially, you've got this Clarkson-esque figure who's now been, who's now gone, and the other blokes have come in. I can't remember their name. 
And essentially, yes, it will still have a following for people who are loyal to the ideas of anti-lockdown. But a large chunk of its support came from the character of Farage, the, the name, you know, the, the sort of the name recognition. So I think, you know, it'll bumble along like the um, Socialist Workers Party does or the um, Northern Independence Party. It's a nice, uh, they've been very kind to the Northern Independence Party there. I think they would dream of having a setup like the uh, Reform UK currently have with all that donor money in the bank. Uh, Lauren, do you, do you agree? Do you think Richard Tice is just a stopgap before the party's death? Yeah, pretty much. I think they're an irrelevance. Um, as I say, with the Conservatives moving more towards populism anyway. I know obviously the whole anti-lockdown thing. There are some Tory MPs that do want to stop lockdown measures, etc. But I don't think that will ever be mainstream enough of a view to justify their existence. So yeah, I, I also agree that Tice is he's really unpleasant. He's really sort of you get the impression he's just very aggressive um, in a way that obviously Farage probably put it on as an act, his whole laughy dad down the pub kind of act that he does. Um, but you know, I, I don't doubt he's probably aggressive too, but Tice is just so brazen with it. It mm. kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, he he's standing in Hartlepool. We think. Obviously, it's it's only the first day it's been announced. But Richard Tice is supposed to be standing in Hartlepool. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how his standing actually affects the by-election result because he got ten thousand votes last time. So that'll be interesting to see. So it's up to you, George. We're going to talk about Hartlepool more, or we can move on. And I, I I sense that you want to move on to the budget. I'll move on to the budget by just quickly adding that I think what what's going to happen with Form UK is it's just going to implode into a set of smaller parties, because as I said in my previous answer, the whole apparatus of Reform UK and the Brexit Party was built on, um, it was a bit like the foolish man who built his handle, house on sand. It's built off of the legacy of UKIP and its members and the high profile people are all defectors from various other political parties running on terms where they got elected first under a different party, then they defected, then they left party politics and they came back. I just, I don't see it's quite stable and I view it a lot like Australian populist parties. But um, that's enough chat like that. Let's talk about something sexy like the budget. Um, so in the time between the last recording and this one, uh, the budget's happened and we discovered that it's a budget of two halves. We've got this very generous stimulus package, which is spread out across a couple of years, where there's going to be um, £270 billion pumped into the economy through uh, the keeping on a furlough till September, business rate cuts, uh, reducing VAT on hospitality goods. It's looking like it's all going to be there. But then at the same time, the other side of it is that we're going to see kind of a return to slow austerity, as there's going to be a freeze on income tax thresholds. Now, that's a loaded term, which basically just means that, let's say, that, I mean, currently it's sitting around about 12,500. The amount um, of threshold before you start paying tax will not increase, which is bad because inflation occurs. So the pounds will be worth less in two years time and goods will be more expensive, but you'll be still taxed at the same threshold which means that in reality, it's a bit of a squeeze on people, particularly on the lower end of like income levels, because that tax is going to hit them a lot harder than it is some other people. Um, at the same time, though, um, corporation tax is going to rise up to 25% by 2025. Personally, I don't think it'll happen, but you know. Um, Steve Richards, uh, who's a favourite political um, commentator of mine describes it as kind of lacking vision or not being quite intricate or elaborate like of a previous chancellor's budgets so 
my question to the panel simply is what do you think of it um do you think that this is just what the british economy needs or do you just think this is ignoring a lot of groups and people who need financial aid and we'll start with lauren shall we yeah so obviously the budget has been spun very very well there's you know lots of talk of the investment in areas that the tories want to win back at the expense of places that actually really need it um from the off the most concerning part for me is the hidden 30 billion pounds of cuts to the department of health and social care budgets during a pandemic um you know that is abhorrent it's reckless it adds extra evidence to the charges of social murder that I've leveled at the government for not just their handling of the pandemic, but austerity, Grenfell, Windrush. The most concerning part as well is that the IFS have said that Sunak's spending plans, and I quote, do not look deliverable, at least not without considerable pain. After a decade of austerity, we have had enough pain. When will they learn? There's, we're at rock bottom. Our public services are decimated. What is there left to cut? What what else can we give as a country? Um, you know, what else can we sacrifice for them? Um, I don't believe the corporation tax rise will happen either. And I think it's funny that they laughed at the Labour's um, 26% rate when theirs is literally 1% less. I think that's quite funny. Um, you know, we are in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of a recession. And I think Sunak's plans will constrict the economy even further by taking money out of lower income families' pockets, as you've said. And also it will lead cuts to public services. So, you know, I'm, as you can tell, not very happy about it. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I didn't want to say that you might have given the game away with that, but that is the impression you do give off. Um, shall we turn to Rob? What do you think? Uh, as you know, George, I'm hopeless with the budgets. I, I switch off. When they happen. Thank you to Lauren for that very impressive uh, summary of it because I honestly know next to nothing about budgets. The only thing I pay attention to in terms of the budget is the person who handed it out and I'm not a fan of Rishi Sunak. I think he's a hollow, hollow figure. He is, uh, he, he's using it as a, as a platform to become prime minister at some point which I suppose in of itself isn't particularly unique. It's sort of what Gordon Brown did. It's what an awful lot of chancellors of the Exchequer over the years have done. But it's so blazon and uh, it's just so obvious what he's doing. It, it doesn't go out with the Treasury seal. It goes out with Rishi Sunak's bloody signature on it. That's, and stuff like that. It's, it's infuriating. That's the difference between like a Brown budget and a Sunak budget because Brown was really clever in the fact that he gave out the tax credits, <clears throat> which meant that this... That more working people had money put in their accounts, but Gordon Brown didn't go out of his way to say, it's me who's done it, it's I. It's, it was Gordon done Brown by didn't the state. have to. People knew. People yeah, knew well, Gordon Brown. Well, that's the thing. But, Most people, even at the time, didn't credit him for it because they had no idea he'd done it. It was not until much later when they realised, oh, that was because of Brown's actions. It's just, I, I just, there's something about Sanak that I just don't, I don't trust him at all. Yeah, um, he'll, he'll go loopy if you give him some Mexican coke after all. Well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, be careful, of course, yeah. with the with how you <laughs> what you say, but yeah. Yes. Um... Shall we turn to yeah, Alistair then? Well, um, on the day the budget was announced, it was actually the day Nicola Sturgeon was giving evidence to the Scottish Inquiry. <laughs> so I didn't watch the budget live, but have since been dissecting it in the murky Excel sheets of my computer. And quite frankly, I'm not impressed at all. It's a, basically, it's just entirely built on the idea and the premise that we should go back to a huge consumerism. This country is going to become a tertiary industry country. We're going to have nothing made here. We're going to have nothing made by British people going abroad when reality 
what we have is an opportunity to get ahead in the race and get um, exporting to the world green technology and become that hub. But no, instead, we decided to go back to the old way, where when you come out of school when you're 16, you work in Trespass or you work in Sainsbury's or Tesco's instead of going into an, a, a, tra a trained, skilled job. You know, well, I'm not saying obviously people who work in retail obviously do have to deal with a lot of things, but they're not learning a vocation. Uh, no. They're not learning a unique uh, skill like um, to work with electricity that's uh, be transplanted. They are stuck in that industry without retraining. So I think really we need to look at retraining young people, lots more apprenticeships especially, and proper industry in this country, not just consumer spending. It's also notable just from a political perspective that they're emphasising parts of the economy where they've managed to roll back workers' rights quite a bit with also the zero-hours contracts, the weakening of the unions inside of retail. It's all just very hollow, isn't it? Um, well, exactly. It's entirely built on the premise that we're going to keep buying in from China to hold up our world consumer share. It's disappointing, really. There's no, nothing for the long term. Unfortunately, this segment is for the short term because there's only so long you can talk about budgets and passing rates before uh, that part of your brain, which is interesting, it just switches off. So um, I think we should talk about something a bit more um, interesting. And of course, Alistair mentioned the fact that he's been watching the Salmon Inquiry, which is why we're going to turn once again to Rob, who has got the lowdown. Well, um, it's been a really quite chaotic period of time for the Scottish National Party. A couple of uh, a couple of episodes ago, we all of us said that we thought the SNP were cruising to a majority. There's no way in hell that we didn't think they'd get a majority. And it has ever since there's been scandal after scandal after scandal. Alex Salmond appeared before the Salmond inquiry and has caused all manner of problems for Nicola Sturgeon. She herself then appeared before the committee and was thoroughly grilled by Jackie Bailey, amongst others, who revealed several flaws with the First Minister's arguments. This is in addition to several other key members of the SNP, including, a, I think it was a whip in Westminster, one of the SNP's members of Parliament, having to resign over allegations of sexual misconduct. It's been a really difficult time, and it's shown because the SNP are slumping in the opinion polls, and there are suggestions that they may struggle to get the majority we all thought was so certain. So what does Anna Soar, other figures in Scotland, what do they need to do while this is going on to ensure that the SNP can't wriggle out of it? That's the question I'm going to pose to the panel, is what do Scottish Labour and other opposition parties in Scotland do to hold the SNP to account? So we'll start with someone whose finger I know is poised over the unmute button. Alistair, would you please explain the situation for us? Oh, good grief. Where does one begin? Um, after being grilled for nine hours, Nicola Sturgeon was, by Jackie Bailey and Murdo Fraser and many others, we essentially got no further forward because she, I think it was 54 times she said, I don't know, slash I don't recall. So there are some corners that she's backed herself into regarding meetings and breaches of the ministerial code. But regardless of that, she said that she might not resign if she is found to have breached the uh, ministerial code, something which would have many um, democracy theorists spinning in their grave, I reckon. But fundamentally, the SNP has a huge problem here because they have a culture which is loyal to an ideology to a fault. To speak out against anybody else who is loyal to that ideology is seen as a sort of a form of ideological treason we see that with the vitriol online between the Salmond 
the Samanites and the Sturgeon supporters. And so they've been grappling for any good news story they can. And obviously they can't really point to the vaccine rollout, slowest in the UK and getting worse. And they've, only this week they've had a botched envelope job, meaning that lots of 60s to 64s do not have vaccine appointments. And when they do, they have to wait up to two hours for them at the, at the um, centres. So what, can, what are they doing to try and call it back? Well, today we had um, new restrictions listed for coronavirus. Um, all of a sudden we've gone from no changes until the end of April to pubs at the end of April, just days before the election. Now, I'm going to be horrifically cynical and say that was calculated, as will the unions when they talked about the schools, because on the day the chief whip was forced to resign or was suspended for uh, allegations of sexual misconduct, which Sturgeon has known about for three years and not acted on, uh, they took a decision that afternoon to reopen schools, not providing parents with the two weeks notice they said they would. So they're using the unlocking system to cover up a series of sleaze scandals, which are not going to go away because we've got Derek Mackay still clinging on and taking full pay after his messages to a 16-year-old boy on social media. And then we've got Margaret Ferrier, who is under police investigation still for her, well, testing positive for coronavirus and then going, through the, going to the gym. But I'll let everyone else come in because I feel like I've talked for a while now. No, no, it's 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 informative. It's all it's all good. Lauren, what what's your take of of Scotland? Do you think it's do you think Sturgeon's in trouble? Well, I hope so. Um, you know, I I think I'm going to be honest. I I like to normalise saying when I don't feel qualified to talk about an issue, and this is one of those times. And I feel like you know, Alistair is far better informed and best placed to say this you know I am an English person and these days if you say you're English you get locked up so um oh, maybe... <laughs> George, George yeah. fist raising in the air there finally yes. someone who subscribes to my political ideology at long last we found exactly. one exactly um <laughs> so you know it's one of those occasions where I don't really feel like it's for me to say and I think that is part of the issue with Labour's image in maybe in Scotland is that maybe we are seen to speak over people in Scottish Labour but that could be wrong I don't know um you know I think that I've had a few discussions with Scottish people friends and stuff um people that should naturally support Labour who are left-wing in their values but they like the SNP for whatever reason so it's really we've got to dismantle this image that the SNP are progressive because they're really not that's mm. pretty much as far as I go on the issue <laughs> yeah well no, no, that's that's a uh, really great addition to one of the themes that we talk about every single time is just how the, the SNP have got this progressive image and they haven't done a, a single progressive thing for a long, long time, really. I mean, and a, a lot of the time they piggyback off of things that other groups have done. I, I can't remember exactly what it is. Alistair will tell me. I think it was, they did they remove the tax on female hygiene products, but that was um, a Labour thing and then they took credit for it. So um, there was... Monica Lennon's bill yeah. to give free sanitary products for, on the NHS and just generally across Scotland. And the SNP opposed it because of cross-border tampon rates. I, I quote that quite astonishingly. It's possibly one of the most horrific things that's ever been said in that parliament. Just what women want to do, isn't it? You know, time of the month go on a cross-border tampon raid honestly they come up here they steal our tampons uh, you know <laughs> it's, a, it's a ridiculous uh, suggestion but it's pretty much indicative of what the snp are all about
It does. It does seem as though the S and P are slipping, though. So, George, do you, do you agree? Do you think that the S and P are in trouble? Yes. Um, like Lauren, I myself am English, which means that me talking about the culture of the SNP or what I think needs to be done up there is pointless and, to be honest, a bit condescending. So instead, my points will be taken primarily from polling data. Um, the thing which is really catching my eye is the fact when you look at the uh, polling damage done to the um, SNP, you look at um, how this thing is being perceived. So about 20% to 21% of SNP voters perceive that this entire inquiry and what, what the thing that's going on around it and what's happened is all a massive conspiracy to bring down Alex Salmond, which is, um, shall we say, slightly worrying for the SNP, because if this is happening and their, poll, their vote share is going down mildly, what this means in May is that they'll still come away with probably the majority of the seats, but not a full-blown majority, and in fact might even come away with reduced seats, increasing their dependence on Scottish Greens, who um, we saw during the vote no confidence in the Deputy First Minister were just lackeys for them, for want of a better word. Mm. So what I think is really intriguing is kind of where this is all going to go if this inquiry drags its heels, because they've only got so many announcements they can make before they run out of stuff to cover up all the sleeves, because no doubt if next week there's another revelation in the Salmon inquiry, they can't just announce that afternoon they're going to open up all the hairdressers again uh, without any notice. Personally, I'm hoping... Oh, um, they've done that. Can I just say, <laughs> they did that this afternoon. Oh no, oh, no. that's incredible. Gonna so they've, they've got no excuses. The one excuse George offered the SP they have used. They, they, um, they're running out of things right now. Uh, I look forward to when they introduce more pandas. To I, feel like, I feel <laughs> like the pandas are going back. <laughs> Get rid of them when they even born there. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but that's that's kind of that's kind of my take on it. Just the fact that um, while this is going on, they're being damaged by it quite a bit, and it seems that they can they can only throw out positive headlines so often because inevitable. What's going to happen is they're going to announce that they're reopening the country too fast, which will cause a mild spike in the cases potentially. Which, if that happens, and then they find themselves having to bring restrictions back in, they're just going to even look even more unpopular and incompetent. Which yeah. I don't think is an image that a party which is being surrounded in sleaze wants. But that's all I have to say on the matter. Mm. Well, I think I don't know if Alistair will agree. With me. I think the key thing we're seeing in the polling at the moment is that competency is is the key to all the polling across the UK. That's at Westminster, in the Welsh Senate, and in Holyrood. I think if a government looks stable, if it looks like it's managing the situation properly and, you know, with, with sensible measures, then the polling tends to reflect a, a general swing to that party. That's what's been happening with the Conservatives in Westminster with the vaccine bounce, which, as we've said, has been wrongly attributed to the government. Um, in Wales, Mark Drakeford, as Alistair said earlier on, is, is reaping the benefits of the very, very successful vaccination programme going on there. And for Nicola Sturgeon, the SNP, the polling reflects it's beginning to fall apart. I mean, so many slea scandals and now they are panicking. It seems very clear to me that they are panicking by offering all manner of, of bait to the, to the voters by saying, look, you can go for a drink on April 26th, go and get rat arsed and just remember who opened the pub so you could go and get rat arsed it's it's very desperate but it's very dangerous as george says if it leads to a spike then it could and it, it most likely will lead to a spike because we're not there yet the vaccination program across the country is going very well but it's not there yet uh and if it does lead to a spike which it very well could do they're in a fair amount of trouble because it's them who's caused it I also like to imagine that what will happen is they will encourage all of their supporters to go and get drunk uh, the day before polling day and they're all too hungover to go and cast the ballots, which is... Is this you plugging Red Rose Roots, George? 
I mean, it might be. It might be. Because, you know, when you're hungover and you want to listen to a good podcast, check out Red Rose Roots. Oh, I thought that was a new ale you were bringing out. (laughs) (laughs) We're not there yet with merchandising. Um, But um, it's on that theme of competency that I want to just kind of close this segment and move over towards our final issue-based one. And that's, of course, talking about the entire situation that's been going off down in London with the murder of Sarah uh, Everard, talking about the crisis in policing. Um, in terms of polls, since this is a polling podcast, um, 97% of um, 18 to 24 women said that they have been harassed. Juxtaposing this is the YouGov poll, which showed that 47% of people said that the current head of the Met should resign, with another 33% saying that, you know, the vigil which led to arrests over the weekend should not have gone ahead. There's this clear thing going on at the minute where we're finally getting ready to have a conversation about the state of policing, because this seems to happen once every generation. It um, happened when the Stephen Lawrence um, murder happened, and that led to an entire series of reforms. And now we're potentially going to sit within our own zeitgeist, which is why I'm very keen to just ask Lauren what needs to be done about the mess. And Equally, why is it, do you think, that Labour is doomed to have a blind spot with social issues like this? Um, Because we were only bounced into, as the Labour Party, we were only bounced into opposing this bill because of the events that happened, not because of the horrific uh, restrictions it puts on vulnerable communities like the uh, Gypsy and Romani one. So why why is it that we're doomed towards this blind spot of just not acting until we're kind of forced to? I think... I think something we were talking about in the briefing as well um, about the red wall is like an important part of, I think, why there is a bit of an anxiety with some in the Labour Party to tackle inequalities. And I think that is one of the biggest misconceptions of all, that not only is the red wall apparently racist, that no ethnic minorities or trans people live there. Um, It's, you know, it's one of my biggest gripes. I've lived in so many different places now, some in the red wall, some not. Um, and I say this as a white person, I will never experience racism aimed at me, but I've seen more hostility towards people of colour in places like Devon than I have in Stoke or Wolverhampton. Um, but there's not a stereotype banded around that the Southwest is somehow this racist cesspit that, you know, Labour dare ever be progressive in or will never win it back. That's never discussed. Um, and if I see another... 18 year old politics student Tory from Kent presumed to speak for the entirety of the Red Wall I think I will scream and I say this as a southerner myself um you know it's it's just total bollocks it's people appropriating the Red Wall to justify their own bigotries which is obviously grim in terms of policing um it's a difficult one uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I I would like to see widespread reform of the police. I'm not an abolitionist because, frankly, I'm yet to see the tangible alternatives for public protection that the police provide. I know there are obvious issues with how they go about it, whether they do protect, who they protect and for what reason. Um, But there is an element of their role, you know, for catching murderers. I'm not going to go into that, but you know what I'm trying to say. It's the same reason. I'm not a prison abolitionist either because prisons, whilst inherently flawed and a tool for oppression, also do serve some form of public protection. And there is not an alternative that I've seen that is workable for those either. But it's pretty clear that something big needs to change because after the murder of Jean-Charles de Menezes at the hands of police on Cressida Dick's watch, 
she should be absolutely nowhere near a position of power or role of authority and she should absolutely resign and Keir Starmer saying otherwise is an absolute insult to every woman in this country that has ever faced harassment abuse assault or of anything of that nature it's an insult to every minority group that has suffered at the hands of the police because let's not forget working class people people of color BAME communities have been saying this for decades that the police are inherently um prejudiced racist in institutionally racist we've known this this is not new information the Lamy review the McPherson report this is not new information um I think part of it become, is, is because the police are largely allowed to mark their own homework when they get things wrong, as they often do. Yeah. And it's not just a problem with the Met. This goes beyond one individual force and it speaks to the problems endemic, not just within policing, but the justice system. The inequalities that are rife and that will only be exacerbated by this policing bill that's going through, because it will go through, which sees women as less of a priority for protection than a piece of concrete. It's a bill that sees gypsy, Roma and traveller communities criminalised, a bill that, you know, it curtails our rights to protest and it's not being proposed in the interests of crime reduction. If that was the case, the bill's own impact assessment would not point to it being a complete waste of time as it does. Um, so, yeah, overall, what's needed is more accountability, oversight, screening of police officers, more community policing and the police need fewer powers, not more. Um, but it isn't a quick fix. I don't have the answers that I can fire off now. You, you probably want like a, a report into it or something, but it, you need to be a change from top to bottom with dignity and human rights at, at the centre of it, not as an afterthought. Well, I would just I would just want to quickly follow this up just because obviously um, you're kind of a new, unique perspective compared to the rest of the panel, because in all of this, we've talked about like the rights of women and uh, let's face it, me, Alistair and Rob can't talk about that because we've got no idea what the hell we're talking about in that respect. Um, what, what, what would personally make you feel more confident in policing um, as a woman? Like what would actually make you feel safer, I suppose? I know that's a very built up question. Um, if you don't feel you have a proper answer for that, there's no obligation, but still. Uh, a, a police force which doesn't fail to act when women come forward to tell them what's happened to them. A police force that doesn't al allegedly allow one of its own to kill women and then have the investigating officers and people guarding her body sending demeaning texts to colleagues about her while she is dead. Yeah. Um, a police force that doesn't exacerbate every single inequality that already exists in our society and adopt it and package it and then replicate it in their own ranks that's what I, that's what i want thank you so in order to ask the rest of the panel questions on this topic i'm going to kind of rephrase it for robin alistair um lauren has very expertly talked about the uh policing bill which is going to come through which is completely draconian in its restrictions on people uh what i want to ask you two is um how do you, how would you actually feel attending a protest after this? Like, how would you feel the state of democracy in Britain would be following on this, where if a protest is deemed to be a massive public annoyance, it can just be shut down? And let's start with Rob. Um, well, I, I wasn't a big protester before, to be honest. I don't attend protests, not because I don't believe in them. It's just it's just not my cup of tea. Not to say I will never attend one, but it's so far in my life I have never felt the need to go to a protest. Um, and probably that's because 
there's a fair amount of privilege there. You know, I, I've not been someone that's been overwhelmingly impacted by anything the government has done. So I've never personally felt that need to protest. Going forward, the, the bill is deeply concerning. And it's concerning for all the reasons that Lauren really, really well laid out for us. And, the, you know, it's, it's terrifying that the government can just, on a whim, go, we're going to stop people protesting because it's noisy. And that will get through Parliament. That the, the backbenchers of the Tory party who have been raving about this lockdown, which has been to save lives, are now not absolutely indignant with rage about the fact that their government, that, that they are the backbenchers of, are pursuing a policy to remove people's right to protest. It's a fundamental aspect of democracy that people are allowed to protest because that's how democracy works. You've got to be able to express your discomfort and your anger at things the government do. And you only have general elections once every five years, so you can't just wait for the ballot box. Local elections don't have enough impact for the rage to come through, so people protest, and they rightly protest. So going forward to a protest, I, I say to people, do still go on protests. This is your fundamental right in a democratic nation. Still go on the protests. And don't let the government tell you that, you, that you know, you being noisy is a problem. That's the fucking point of a protest. Be noisy and have your, your voice heard. And it's, it, the bill is, the fact that the bill is here at all, it's just ludicrous, in my opinion. I, I mean, how many massive moments from recent political, um, you know, history would be now deemed legal? The, um, I mean, the Iraq war and Iraq march, war? The, that, that would have been just clamped the down. marches and stuff like that would have been illegal. Yeah. And I didn't, I, you know, I, I, wasn't, I, I wasn't a Remainer, but I still understood why those people were marching and it was their fundamental right to do so. And the fact that those protests would have been illegal had this bill been there is just disgusting. Hell, even underneath this bill, Nigel Farage's walk for Brexit, if anyone remembers well, exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's, it's lunacy. It's just, let's, it's let's turn to Alistair, shall we? What, what are you, what's your take? Well, see, I first went on my first protest when I was four. My mother took me on an anti-Trident protest, which is rather ironic because I am now massively pro-Trident. Uh, but leaving that aside, well, it's not just protests that this bill affects. If your neighbour decides that the gala parade for the middle of your town is a serious annoyance to them, they can get it banned. And the police don't have to justify that. You know, the, the, the vagueness of the text within this bill will be able to ban everything from the children's gala up to, you know, pride marches or, well, in the case of Northern Ireland, where it, I don't know if it will have jurisdiction, uh, you know, orange marches and such. You know, it's not just about whether or not you participate in protests yourself, but also every aspect of sort of public community could be gone in an instant, as long as somebody along the march route uh, decides that it's a serious annoyance for them. Oh, they can't get their car out the driveway for 30 minutes, therefore it's not going to happen. You know, it's disappointing, frankly, that um, we have a parliament that seems to be so impotent and the, the natural conservative spirit of the Conservative Party seems to have just disappeared. The idea of liberty and freedom of speech just doesn't seem to be apparent. We had um, Desmond Swain on talk radio defending free speech, talking about the universities. They brought him onto this bill and he said he was gonna vote for it. You know, 
they've got no um, sense of backbone on this issue, and I'm very, very disappointed well, um, that our parliament also... is not well doing more to oppose this. But I'm hoping it's not defended under the Salisbury Convention, so we'll have the Lords kick it. Let, let's hope, though, that um, Desmond Swain does find some backbone, because let us all not, all not forget the fact that he was the MP who defended doing blackface multiple times. Oh, um, yes. Him. Yes. The um, pride things, I, I, I hadn't caught on to that, but that's true, isn't it? That, that the, if someone made that complaint under this legislation, they could ban pride events across the country. I don't think any police force would be stupid enough to go for that, but that is that is a possibility under this legislation, isn't it? It just doesn't compute. I mean, it does because it's Boris Johnson's Conservative Party and the way that you make advances in Boris Johnson's Conservative Party is either being an absolutely just detestable person like Pretty Patel, and if she's listening, she can go sod herself. Well, uh, <laughs> and it's and but and <laughs> or or you are a, a weak, spineless coward who at every opportunity defends the inexcusable actions of a government that is just making it up as it goes along. I mean, we saw in that bill, and, and uh, Lauren mentioned it, that statues were mentioned more than women were, that the protection of statues is more paramount than the defence of its own citizenry. And it's just it's just ridiculous. It's, it's attempting to stir up culture war, war bollocks that doesn't belong in this country's politics. It's ridiculous. I mean, I think as well, like my perspective is that my parents uh, both worked within kind of police officer and like criminal uh, justice and what have you. And the way my mum described like kind of why she wanted to be a police was about like protecting the community, helping people and like being the change that, you know, she wanted to see and like basically being there and like, you know, essentially just helping people. Mm. Guarding a statue of Churchill above women who've gone through rape just does no i can't ever associate that as doing anything other than just being pawns in a political game and for me the this this whole thing has just opened up every single weakness the police force has because everything everything from start to finish has gone wrong from the from the very moment where like, this this young woman was missing and the statement that went out is that she shouldn't have gone out alone not that we're not that we're doing our absolute bloody best to try and find this poor girl but the she shouldn't have gone home alone, which is just a pathetic response. And then you've got, you know, a vigil for this poor woman who's been murdered by someone in the Metropolitan Police Service, allegedly. And and they turn up in, in riot gear gloves, in body vests, and they start dragging off people who were at a protest. This is having refused to work with the events, you know, the event managers, the, the Reclaim the Streets movement, approached the police and said we'd like to hold a vigil will you help us do it in a covid secure way and the metropolitan police said no so the fact that people weren't socially distancing i'm sorry it's on them and because it's on them it's on the person who runs that institution and that's cressida dick who as again and i can't put it anywhere nearly as eloquent and as powerfully as lauren did but cressida dick has to go and it's cowardice it's political cowardice that keir starmer has has not called for her to go when ed fucking davy is being more politically brave than you. The situation is dire, and it is really, it, it's it's possibly the low point of his of his leadership. I think, from my opinion of him, is that this this is a man who allegedly, in his career as a as a lawyer, as a QC or whatever whatever the title is, was was always about police, always about managing police, overstretching, going over their rights, 
when when the police did something wrong, it was Keir Starmer in his career as a QC who would try and and hold them accountable. And now he's the leader of the opposition, and he won't do it. It's just it's pathetic. Uh, I don't I don't think I can add to that. That's very well put, Rob. Alistair, do you have any further thoughts you want to add? Um, I think just on the thing about um, whether or not we should go into policy about um, more police, the key issue here is social and youth services. Really, that is how you cut antisocial behaviour in communities. And it's through that that we need to make the argument rather than just topping up the police force as it already is. I mean, if I could ban the phrase more bobbies on the beat, I personally would, which is my draconian thing I'd get out of the police <laughs> bill. Um, I think because that's been quite a heavy topic, I'm really mm. pleased then that we are ending on something a little bit lighter. It's time for the, um, the most popular segment, in my imagination, of the whole podcast, Politician or Partridge. Um, now, you all know how this works by now. I've gone out of my way to hunt down a quote from a politician in the UK scene who has said something so Partridian that it just it can't be indistinguishable from an actual Alan Partridge quote. And this week we've gone with David Cameron. Hooray! Yay! Yay, David Cameron. <laughs> Everyone... I remember him. Yeah. He was very fond of pigs, I recall. <laughs> Call me Dave. <laughs> Uh, so the quotes um, I've decided to go for are um, when Partridge and when Cameron both decided to try and do social change. And this is, um, you know, in their own unique way. So I've got two quotes here. And I just need you to tell me which one is David Cameron and which one is Alan Partridge. And this is quote one. I've been discussing how to protect children from pornography with the readers of Good Housekeeping. Statement two. The stern-faced women behind me aren't campaigners or strikers. They're decent British dog lovers on their way to Downing Street with a petition calling for a monument to police dog bravery. Which one's which? This, this is tough because David Cameron was a squeaky clean operator and everything that he did was calculated. And I know for a fact that he did try quite hard to do something about pornography and children accessing pornography. That was... I think something he did in the coalition government leading into 2015 majority government. Um, on the flip side, I can absolutely see him latching on to police dogs. But I think the first statement is David Cameron and the second statement is Partridge. Alistair? That's very, that's very, very annoying because I, I'm, I'm going somewhere along the same lines because I feel like the second one is phrased more like a reporter Mm. and David Cameron being around since the John Major years, I feel like it's perhaps the good housekeeping bit as well. That's him playing to the mother, the stay-at-home mother. He's had to cultivate, what was it, Worcestershire Woman book, as it was called at the time. So I'm going to say the first one is David Cameron, the second one's Alan Partridge. Well, I'm pleased to say that both of you know your politician from your partridge. Um, the first one is indeed yeah. David Cameron, and it's actually from his Twitter account. And there's a lovely picture of him sat around um, women. He sat very slouchly, whereas all of them are sat upright. He looks very relaxed about the whole conversation. It's oh, real. Um, the second statement is from uh, the intro of a This Time of Alan Partridge sketch, which is then followed by Alan... Um, donating money towards the cause of getting a police dog statue, only for him to accidentally reveal his credit card details on camera and lose £10,000. 
<laughs> I was um, really hoping that someone would take the bait for the British dog lovers because I always think of David Cameron as the guy who hugged huskies and he did really try hard to, you know, cultivate this image of loving dogs because he had nothing else to do. I just... No other personality, yeah. <laughs> no personality, just dogs. No, it, I, I, it was just, it was David Cameron's, one of his things was, was pornography. Uh, Policy-wise, <laughs> sorry, policy one of his things was what? <laughs> Policy-wise, one of his things was 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 trying to. I believe there was a porn license that was uh, <laughs> briefly considered. I don't think, ironically, I think it was struck down by the libertarian movements within the Conservative Party. We could probably do with a a resurgence at this present moment in time. But yeah, yeah. no, they'll uh, they'll ensure that kids can access porn. But the moment it comes to a protest, you can get bent. Uh, do we know how D Damien Green voted on that? Uh, he had his hands full at the time, we don't know. Oh, God. Well, it's on that uh, bombshell that we're going to end <laughs> this week's episode. Um, my thanks go out to Lauren Davison for coming on, who, as you might have picked up on in the last few minutes, had to dash because such a busy person that not only is she double booked us, she triple booked us, dashing from Zoom meeting to Zoom meeting. Lauren does incredible work across the board in everything she's associated with. And if you're not following the Labour Coalition for Justice Reform, get following it. Search it up on Twitter. It's there. Get involved. She is a fantastic organiser to be um, working alongside, as I've known, you know, during brief periods working together on Fabian's projects. Alistair, we know your social media handle, my man, but can you just repeat it for us? Um, an error of comedy. Yes, and it, there you go. Is. it saves you having to... Oh, yeah, it is. It, it, it saves you having to figure out the um, correct way of spelling Alistair because it's such a... Um, you know, intermittent thing, you know? <laughs> As I know I did when we first started speaking, because I realised I didn't know any Alistairs. And Rob, what's your social media mm. handle, my friend? It's, um, it is, hang on, I don't actually know. Oh. <laughs> it's Rick99. It's the Well, I'm not that, I don't have any really hot takes, so I just sort of... With that information distilled, you can then follow us at Red Reporting on Twitter and Instagram, or go Red Rose Reporting 2021 on Facebook, or follow us on our brand new website, which we've been trying to push a bit. I don't know if you've seen that. If you have any questions for the podcast, message any of us or the page. The messages are open. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye.